as we were praying, we pray before service uh, every week at about 15 of or 10 of, something like that. And I mentioned at the end of Easter Tide, we're almost there. It draws nigh. So next Sunday is the is the end of Easter Tide. It's Pentecost Sunday. So today is the last stop before then, and it's pretty important. We're celebrating the Ascension. It's a feast day that happened this past week. I always make sure we do it on Sunday because I always miss it. Now, if you grew up like I did, most Protestants they don't make a whole lot of the Ascension. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 we talk about the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then after that, we just kind of jump to maybe Pentecost at that. But I think it's very important. Jesus himself said he must go away in order that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come. So the ascension is Jesus' necessary point of departure. I'm going to say that again, his necessary point of departure. I'm going to explain that as we get into the scriptures. Now, we've been following the life of Jesus very closely ever since Advent, right? Uh, we did uh, from right before his birth to his birth, uh, through a bit of his growing up, uh, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, did all that in Holy Week. Uh, all that's about to change as the church calendar is about to shift. So the ascension, it marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So all those post-resurrection activities that we've been talking about the last several weeks, they culminate today, the ascension. These are his indispensable final words and, and final actions, the final lap. It's a little bit like a last will and testament, if you want to think about that. It's handed down to the disciples. He speaks of some essentials, like things that they need to know, right? <clears throat> the things they can't forget, the things they cannot depart from. So the ascension is important enough to be mentioned in our creeds, and it's in both Luke and Acts. If you listen to the readings, you heard that. Luke thought it was pretty darn important. It is so much so that it's the hinge story that connects Luke and Acts. All right? So Luke wrote both of them, but look at that. At the end of Luke, it's the ascension. At the beginning of Luke, it's the ascension. So pretty important. It's in both books. So it's kind of this glue, this overlap between Luke, part one, what Luke has to say about Jesus, and part two, which is Acts. So I think it's going to become, I hope it becomes very apparent to you as we dive into this passage in Luke, why it's so important. Now the ascension, it goes down hot on the heels of the road to Emmaus. Remember where Jesus vanished from the two traveling companions after he broke bread with them, right? He was made known to them in the breaking of bread and poof, he's gone. Well, the next place we see him is with the disciples in their midst in Jerusalem. And he says, you know, peace be with you, and tells them that twice, probably to keep them from freaking out. Well, that's the story. That is when the ascension happens, this little friend up here. Uh, that's when this happens. This goes down. So, forgive the obvious, but how wonderful is this? In Jesus' final moments on earth, what does he choose to do? He spends it with the disciples. Final moments. These people that he called his friends. So, like the road to Emmaus, he's just proven himself to be truly alive. Not a ghost, not a specter. You read back a little bit in Luke 24, you see that. Like the road to Emmaus, he more fully reveals himself to them. Okay? And like the road to Emmaus, there's a little bit of rebuke in here. As he reminds them, this shouldn't be a surprise. Look, I told you guys this before, before I died. So Luke 24, if you look at this last chapter, uh, where the road to Emmaus is and where the ascension is, I mean, it's really singular and it's message really strong. So Jesus told the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. There's that little bit of rebuke. 
that everything written about me, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. Verses 45 and 44 and 45. So this is God making good on the promises and covenants of old. Guys, it's all pointing to me. The law spoke of me. The prophet spoke of me. The Psalms spoke of me. Those are the three major divisions in the Old Testament. The Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. So when Jesus says these things, it's shorthand for everything. All the Old Testament, beginning to end, is about me. I fulfill all of that. Just like the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And we get this, or they do, we get it secondhand, this breathtaking like 30,000 foot overview of God's plan that's been unfolding from the beginning of time up until now. He says, thus it's written, right? This is his allusion to the scriptures. Thus it's written. He then tells them how all of scripture spoke that he would, one, suffer. Now, if you've been paying attention to any of these stories post-resurrection, any of these sermons, you'll see this is the point of misunderstanding for almost everyone come across in the resurrection stories. No one expected or anticipated a suffering Messiah. No one anticipated a Christ who dies. And yet, Jesus reveals to them how it was written throughout the law of the prophets and the Psalms. And by the way, uh, he spoke of it too, pre-resurrection. So the whole scripture spoke that he would suffer, one. Two, that he would rise. Resurrection, right? On the third day, rise from the dead. Okay, not on the last day, some Jews thought, the day of the Lord, but this Messiah was going to go ahead of his people. He would rise after three days. Again, another thing Jesus spoke of several times before the cross. So thus it is written, the whole of Scripture spoke that this Messiah would suffer and rise again. And all of this in order that, what's the why behind it? Verse 47. That repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached or would be proclaimed, some of your Bibles would say. And it would go to the ends of the earth. Now this is Luke's version, bless you, uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission, right? This is the next phase of God's plan. It's about to unfold. And folks, let's, at least we forget, this is all new to the disciples, right? This is all new, all new to them. So this preaching, this proclamation, the Great Commission, Luke speaking of, it's going to occur in his name. Jesus name that's not um, that's not a new thought for us we're like yeah yeah of course it is this is a big massive theme though that takes root in acts and has carried us well, to this very day Jesus name the authority of his name so the authority of Yahweh's name in the Old Testament that's something that Jesus owns he inhabits it he lays claim to it in the Gospels because he's God incarnate right the mediator for better covenant but scandalous. So Yahweh's authority and Jesus' authority are one and the same. So the work of this proclamation, the work of this preaching that Jesus is about to, frankly, put into the disciples' hands, it's got to be done in his name. It's got to be done. In other words, it's got to be done by his authority. This still plays true for us. My goodness. This authority is not of their own making or ours. It's not born out of their strength or our strength. They don't deserve it, nor do they own it. Same for us. It's authority that's on loan from Jesus, right? It's something that he gives. It's something that he bestows. And all we can do is, is receive it and, and steward it. So it can't be taken or co-opted. Uh, when you find that Jesus' name and his authority is co-opted or taken, uh, whatever ministry or church, wherever you count it, let me just encourage you, like, turn the other way and just run. Don't hang around for that. 
the right and good use of Jesus' name. Why does Jesus give them his authority? Is that all nations, you know this, that all nations might repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is the heart of the Great Commission. That hearts would change. That others would find hope and the forgiveness of sins. That they'd meet God. Now, this part about being for all nations, again, this is not a new thing for us. We know that Jesus is Lord over all humanity. We know that he's not just the Savior for the Jewish people, not just for Israel. We know that this is the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, that there's no ethnic, no national boundaries. Good and fine. That's the heart of the Great Commission, always part of God's plan. And yet, for these guys... The disciples, the early church, struggle mightily with this part of the Great Commission. They struggle with this. This all nations part, they find that very difficult. And it's kind of a scandalous commission to live out. Not until you get the middle of Acts, which took that some time, right? Did the disciples get comfortable and make peace with the idea of reaching out to the Gentiles? It takes them some time. Prior to that, here's their working assumption. Okay, Jesus, we think this is what you meant. Go and proclaim the message to your people, uh, the Jews, who are scattered out to the ends of the earth. That's how they interpreted the Great Commission. God says, nope, my people will be from all nations. So the floodgates begin to open. So Jesus tells them, in light of all this, you are my witnesses of these things. You're my witnesses. It's verse 48. Again, to us we go, okay, yeah, I guess that means they go and, and tell people about Jesus. Now, he's calling them to bear witness. He's calling them to testify. This is, a, this is a weighty thing. To be a witness in the Old Testament sense meant you would verify something was true, it was trustworthy. And it took more than one witness to verify something as true, according to Old Testament law. So, Jesus has more than one to work with, doesn't he? It's not unlike, not totally unlike, uh, being a witness in our court system. But the gravity here is far more weighty. So Jesus isn't asking them to be witnesses to like a better life philosophy. He's not asking them to bear witness to like, here's an improved Jewish religion. And he's not asking them to bear witness to a new moral code. He's asking them to bear witness to him, to actual events, human history. The resurrection of Jesus isn't a metaphor. It happened. So, you'll be a witness. What he means is go tell the masses what you've seen, what you've heard. Tell them what you've experienced firsthand. That's your witness. Take my story of suffering and death and resurrection and hope. Go preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness to all the corners of the earth. Be witnesses to my goodness. Here's how John puts it. First John, first few verses. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. This really happened. Concerning the word of life, Jesus. We've seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you. Okay? That is their mission. That is our mission. Hasn't really changed. Hasn't changed. So Jesus here is throwing the proverbial keys to the car. Here you go, disciples. Here you go. Midstream, midair, but first, and I feel like this is almost like a dad throwing the keys to the car to the kid and saying, on one condition, it's a little bit like that. Hey, hold up, tiger, hold up. But first, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you, okay? But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here's how it works. Here's the mission. Just talked about that. Now hurry up and wait. 
Here's the mission. Hurry up and wait. He literally commands them to stay in the city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Do not jump the gun because you lack one very essential thing. Promise of the Father. So wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. I love that imagery. Usually when Jesus speaks of this way in clothing, it's just, it's all about identity and station and standing with God, how he sees us. and uh, It's just powerful. So wait until you're clothed with power from on high. Now we know Jesus is talking about, what's he, what is this promise that's going to come to them? Who's he talking about? I heard it, I think. Holy Spirit. God bless you. Very good. Uh, this is a promise that is fulfilled, and it's a gift rooted in the Old Testament. Holy Spirit's not just a New Testament thing. You'll see that when our opening acclamation next week in Pentecost. It's from Joel. It's not just this, hey, new thing that God cooked up and it happens in the New Testament. It's where the authority, it's where the power comes from, the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about next week. But here's the thing. What do the disciples know about the Holy Spirit at this point? Uh, not much. Uh, if anything, they don't have their Trinitarian theology worked out. They don't have their pneumatology worked out. That's a study of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, throw a tense-it word at you. I mean, their knowledge and their experience of the Holy Spirit is very, very partial at best, from what we can tell. So, when I say this, I frankly expect two things. Uh, a lot of amens and maybe some laughter, okay? So get this. Here's their situation. They're given a mission. Disciples, they're given a mission, okay? And they're told to wait. And they have very limited and ambiguous data to go on. Can our church identify with that at all? I hear some chuckles. I heard one amen. Let me go through that again. They're given this mission. Then they're told to wait. And then they have very limited and ambiguous data to even go on with that. Guys, come on. Like, let out some, I mean, yeah, that should be just a good belly laugh and an amen. And that's their commissioning. That's what they get. Jesus is assuring them, I will not orphan you in this mission. That remains for us. I won't, I won't orphan you in this mission. But what's next? Ah, they don't know. This is new and uncharted terrain for them. Okay? And now, and only now, having equipped them, taught them one final time, it's time for him to leave. And so after he commissions them in Bethany, which is on the slope of the Mount of Olives, remember that from Holy Week? It's a cool little wink to the audience. Jesus is taken up into the heavens before their eyes. Now I'm going to dip into Acts 1 here a little bit because it brings up this one beautiful part of the ascension. Now, Jesus disappears into a cloud. Now, this cloud is that great sign of God's glory. Remember this from Moses and the Ten Commandments? Cloud of glory. The transfiguration, the cloud of glory. Revelation 11, it's all there. So here it is again. Okay, It's telling us something. This great cloud of glory signals Jesus' return home. His earthly ministry is not complete until he is exalted. That's the theological language. Glorified. Receiving his, his rightful due. This is Jesus fully, listen to me carefully, Jesus fully taking on the mantle of divine kingship. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what he says. Now here's the deal. Jesus has been the king of kings since the day he was born, right? Not many people knew that, 
but he's been the king of kings all along, but only after, only after 33-ish years on this earth of ministry, of life, death, and resurrection, only then is Jesus, the king of kings, finally enthroned, sits on his throne. So the ascension is his enthronement after a very, very long wait. It's not unlike David. David was anointed as Israel's king as a boy, and it took many, many years before he actually took that throne and claimed his reign. So Jesus, is, he's finally exalted here. Finally. He's been faithful. He's finished the race. And he now returns to glory to be seated at the right hand, meaning the throne of God the Father. So this is Jesus, King of Kings. But another thing we must not miss, when Jesus ascends into the heavens, just as important, this is Jesus, our high priest, and Jesus, our mediator. You've heard this before. What is he doing as priest and mediator? He's interceding for us. If Jesus doesn't ascend to God the Father, who intercedes for us? Who? Guys, this is essential. That is why we can't miss the ascension. Worth one Sunday a year to celebrate? Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. Now, side note, uh, I would have loved to have seen what was going on in the heavenlies upon his return. I mean, man, what was that homecoming like? If we could only glimpse it. I mean, that might redefine what celebrating and parting really means. And we'll see it someday. We'll know someday. As Jesus ascends into heaven and disappears into that cloud of glory, the final thing he does, last earthly act, last thing, he blesses them. How incredible and fitting and beautiful. He's blessing the disciples as he's taken up. That's, what's, that's the last will and testament, the very last thing he does. He blesses them, which really shouldn't surprise us one bit, knowing Jesus. And then he's gone. That's it. And what remains after this, and you can't get around it, is an air of finality. Like his earthly work is, is done. Like it's all done. It's consummated. It's completed. This is a definitive end. So after three years with their friend and their Lord, the disciples, they're not going to see him again on the earth. Won't happen. Bittersweet. If I'm in their shoes, I got to be honest, I would have grieved this. I would have wished to see Jesus again. I would have wished to walk from town to town and to talk with him. I would have wished to share a meal with him, maybe even wish for one of his rebukes. You know, boy, don't you miss it when Jesus would give you a good zinger? Maybe. So much to miss out on when you've been loved so fully and so completely. But instead of sadness and despair, uh, what their initial response is, is worship. It's quite beautiful. They witness his glory and they worship him. And by the way, that is the first time that Luke speaks of anyone worshiping Jesus. That's the first time. And this is like in verse 52, very end of his book. So even with this finality, it's interesting. Uh, their response isn't grief. It's actually joy. They're filled with it. They worship. They rejoice. It says they stayed at the temple continually praising God, reminding us that they were indeed obedient to his final command. They did stay put in Jerusalem. They waited. Here's a fun little wink to the audience. Uh, clever Luke, being the good author that he is. So Luke 1, if we go back to the beginnings of Luke, it began, guess where? In the temple. <laughs> With rumblings and rumors and prophecies and promises of a forerunner and a messiah. 
And all this great hope was met with praise. That's where Luke begins, okay, in the temple, with all that going down. So here we are at the end of Luke's gospel, conclusion the same place. And the disciples are praising and blessing God. The Messiah had come, fulfilled all of his promise and prophesied. We've got this cool, full circle journey going on. So Luke begins and ends his gospel with doxology, with praise, with worship. The temple setting at the beginning and at the end is a good hint. They're like these two divine bookends of praise and worship. This doxology to God given to us as a message. And the Gospel of Luke ends with a big ellipse. You guys know what an ellipse is? A dot, dot, dot. It's not finished. The story is kind of like a to be continued. Good gracious. Uh, it ends with an ellipse. A dot, dot, dot with a promise of what's to come. And that's what next Sunday is all about, Pentecost. So there's your, there's your carrot, there's your teaser. I hope you come next week. So if there are any fans here, I'm going to date myself, that's fine. If there are any fans here of like 90s alternative rock and roll, uh, oh yeah, I heard a, I think a yeah or something. A band called Semisonic had a really great album. They had a song called Closing Time. Great song, very quotable, but I'm going to, for our purposes, this is the line I'm going to lift from it. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Get your head around that. So every new beginning, Acts, comes from some other beginning's end. Luke, right? Closing time fits the ascension very, very well. The ascension marks the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's an ending. It is a definitive departure, okay? But it's also the start of his heavenly reign. It's a new beginning. It's an arrival. It's a homecoming. And for us, the ascension marks the beginning of a new era. These are the days of the Great Commission. It's been called many things. The last days, the great, but these are the days that we live in, the Great Commission. So this new era, which we inhabit, which, yes, has been going for a couple millennia now, it's a difficult mixture of working and waiting, right? And I could say a lot about both of those. That's probably a sermon series. I'm not going to inflict that on you today. Uh, there's the work Jesus gave us to do. There's the mission. And then there's the waiting on so many things in life. That's a long list. And I want to say there's a couple of errors that can tempt us in that as we work and wait. You've heard this phrase. Uh, we can be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. You all heard that before? And what that means, if you haven't, it's... You know, uh, you can be a Christian who's sort of pie in the sky. Uh, you're not really doing mission necessary. You're sort of ignoring reality, and you're disengaged from the ills of the world. You're not really invested at all in your earthly life. So that's one error. You're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. And here's the other error. You can live as if this is all there is, right? And neglect the eternal reality that is to come. I want to suggest to you, it is a both and. Jesus reminds us that our earthly lives definitely matter. And they're also a preface of what's to come. So it's not, you don't have to choose between those. It's a both and. Let me give you an anchor here, a quote from Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge. That's a tongue twister. The only ultimate disaster that can befall us is to feel ourselves to be at home here on earth. Listen to that again. The only ultimate disaster that can befall us is to feel ourselves to be home here on earth. 
So, I mean, as we work and wait, as we live into the Great Commission Jesus gave us, we cannot forget that this isn't our home. This is not our home. As Christians, we're in the world, but, but not of it, right? It's that paradox. We're sojourners. Some days, if you're like me, I think some of you might be, I find this really hard to remember. Because we're born here, we live here, we work here, we love here, we invest here, and eventually we die here. It's hard to remember that this is not our home. There's a tension of working and waiting because of that whole dual citizens of earth and heaven. That's a tough gig. Jesus has some assurance for us in this. He offered it to his disciples in John 14, 1 through 3. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So you know the place where I'm going. So this is more than a bit assuring and comforting to me. Jesus said he's going ahead of us to prepare a place for us. The ascension reminds us that we are not going to be sojourners forever, right? And without Jesus preparing a place for us, we can't follow him. We can't follow him and be with him into eternity. How can we arrive in heaven unless he's gone ahead of us to prepare a place for you and I? He chose to ascend and he chose to leave. And let me put this in kind of campy terms to go get a room ready for you and to go get a room ready for me and to go get a room ready for all those in his family. It's elementary, but this is the stuff of biblical hope. Jesus had to go. Well, he didn't have to, he chose to. Jesus, let me in here. He was faithful to the very, 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 very end. Faithful in so many ways, even after his resurrection, which is, ah, that's amazing to me. After all he went through and died on the cross to be resurrected, he still goes out and teaches and disciples and reminds. There's still work to be done, and he does it. Folks, if I'd just done everything Jesus just did and got to the end of the resurrection, if you guys don't buy it now, I'm out. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He's faithful, even after the resurrection. The ascension shows us that he finished well, finished rightly. And his faithfulness, uh, this finishing well, it prepares us to receive what's coming next in the great salvation story, which is, guess what, next week, the gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost Sunday. So thank you, Jesus, our King, and our mediator for going ahead of us and leaning in next week, come Holy Spirit.